0: Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nicolai, University of Minnesota Extension Educator in Field Crops. I'm here along with my co-host, Dr. Seth Nave, uh, University of Minnesota Extension Specialist in Soybean Production. Our special guest today, Seth, uh, is uh, one of the faculty members here at the University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy, uh, Jim Anderson, he's a professor uh, in uh, dealing with small grain primarily, and in in genetics and, uh, and in plant breeding. Jim, welcome to the program. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump right in and give you an opportunity to maybe introduce yourself a little bit more in detail in terms of um, your own academic background um, and in terms of that, uh, uh, where you grew up, and basically how do you ended up here at the University of Minnesota. So I know that's a mouthful, but you can jump in wherever you'd like.
1: All right. Thanks, Dave, and thanks for inviting me to be on the the podcast. Uh, so I am a Minnesota native. Uh, grew up on a small dairy farm uh, near Saint Peter, Minnesota, and came up to University of Minnesota here uh, and majored in agronomy. Uh, graduated here in 1987. Uh, went on to Kentucky for a master's degree and then went to Cornell, uh, to do my PhD. And my PhD was in wheat breeding and genetics. And I kind of got in on the ground floor of this new technology called DNA markers and that sort of launched my career.
0: So tell us a little bit about, uh, your growing up here in, in, in Minnesota. I think you mentioned it was a, a small farm, but what, what really prompted you to think about, uh, the area of, of, agronomy and, and, and crop science.
1: So it was a dairy farm, um, and we, so we had corn, soybeans, alfalfa, occasional small grains as a nurse crop for, for alfalfa, and I was always uh, more interested in the agronomy side of things. I remember going with, with my dad to uh, field day talks, so corn breeders would be talking about their newest hybrids, and we went to the uh, field day at the Wasika Research and Outreach Center, And that's that's what really kind of sparked my interest in agronomy as as a career. And when I was looking around for places to to do that degree, you know, U of M St. Paul campus was was, you know, top of my list.
0: Then when uh, what year did you come here on staff on faculty? You mentioned you were at Cornell and then were you looking around at that point in time? Was there an opening here?
1: So from Cornell, let's go, I'll go back a little, uh, bit. So Cornell, I graduated in 1992 and then my first position was at North Dakota State University. Uh, I was there from 92 to 96. And from there I went to the USDA ARS in Pullman, Washington as a winter wheat breeder. I was there for two years and then I came into my current position as spring wheat breeder in 1998. Okay.
0: And who was here at Minnesota just prior to that in the in the areas of the breeding in, in terms of small grain?
1: So uh, Bob Bush was the spring wheat breeder. He was a USDA ARS scientist, uh, but during that transition, USDA uh, had decided that they didn't want to you know have a breeding position. They wanted a geneticist position, and the university this well we we you know we need to have a spring wheat breeder. So the university essentially added. Uh, a new staff position. So that's, that's my role. Okay.
0: And you again, came here what year?
1: 1998. Okay.
2: With me, we started together. Mm-hmm. I remember you and I went on, uh, our, um, we did kind of a freshman tour of the state and we toured around, uh, way back when. So uh, that's, that's where I got to know you actually on, on the C fans. And I don't even remember what our college was called at the time, but there was a, there was an, agri- uh, agricultural, um, whatever the ag college was at the time when we, we toured around the state and went to Lamberton and visited a couple of other things.
0: So did you have an opportunity to uh, chart your own path and so to speak? You mentioned that one of the things they were looking for was obviously uh, somebody not just in genetics but would have a handle on the breeding side as well. Uh, how much uh, leeway does a new faculty member uh, have when they come into a position like this? Or did you, were you able to chart your own course, so to speak?
1: Uh, to some extent, I mean, the, the, the position is spring wheat breeding and genetics. So that, that's something that was expected and the, the expectation is there, there is that you are going to develop new improved varieties and germplasm, uh, but also help the de- develop the science around that. So better ways to do the breeding. Or you know, innovative ways to attack the problem, and like like I said, when I when I graduated from Cornell, my you know I kind of got in on the ground floor of that DNA marker technology. So that's something that I brought to the program here that hadn't been uh, done previously. Uh, so I got involved immediately with um, uh, trying to take that technology to bear on the biggest problem at the time, which was Fusarium head blight resistance, or SCAP. Uh, So we had had mapped some genes, um, others had mapped genes, so we started using DNA markers to select for those genes. Uh, It makes the breeding uh, process more efficient. And most of my first graduate students, uh, what they were tasked with doing is finding resistance genes for that particular disease and those genes that we found early on have now you know, helped uh, elevate the resistance level of our, of our germ plasm so that now most of our varieties are moderately resistant to that disease.
2: So what's the time frame um, in the science? So you started releasing varieties right away, but those varieties were in the pipeline from Bush's program, I assume. And so you started releasing varieties. And then what What's kind of the the tempo or um, the time frame for those varieties that you really had that you felt like you really had the you know brought in from the very beginning? I guess some of the first crosses that you made. When when did those come out of of your program? And when what what are some of the first varieties that came out of your program specifically? Maybe. Yeah.
1: So it, it's about an eight to ten year timeline from when you first make a cross to when there's a release. So you're right, you know, I inherited a full pipeline from, you know, first generation crosses to things that had been in yield trials for five or six years and ready for a decision whether they get released or or not. And in those early years, it was kind of rough because our program, as many other spring wheat programs had been pretty ravaged by fusarium head blight. So, um there was really no point in releasing something that was susceptible to that disease. So we're, you know, we're heavily, uh, selecting for resistance to that disease. Uh, the first variety that I would say I had any real involvement in was Oakley that was released in 2003. So that was a, you know, five year gap from when I came on until we had our first, uh, real variety. Um, And then I would say the first one where I had made the cross was probably 2010, 2011. So, you know, there's at least 10-year time period. So I was basically, you know, sifting through my predecessor's uh, material. In the meantime, we did have a really good one. RBO7 was grown on more than one. It was released in 2007. And uh, the acronym RB, that stands for Robert Bush. So to honor... Honor his contributions uh, to Minnesota wheat breeding. That variety was grown on over one million acres across Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota in 2011. Um, it didn't didn't last for very long. It was only out there for a couple of years, but it was very popular for at least uh, at least 2011.
2: And so you've released a total of 20 some varieties or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yep, yep. And uh, we still have really good traction from from the. Uh, the public sector in uh, varieties uh, grown through Minnesota and the Dakotas, is that right?
1: Yes, so that, that's something that I' like to keep track of. Um, mostly so uh, when it comes time to, to promote our next variety release or decide what we're going to release, we know what growers are choosing and we know what maybe should be replaced or what we think should be replaced. So that's when I came into the position, that's one of the first thing I asked for in 1998 was, you know, wheat, wheat growers, we need, we need a variety survey because that hadn't been done routinely. And if you ask the Natu- National egg Statistics Service to do it, they'll, they'll do it, but they charge a lot for it. Uh, so Minnesota hadn't been doing it routinely. So the wheat growers took that on and started mailing out a, a postcard variety survey. So uh, we would put 40 variety names that we think were the most popular on there, and they would check out or write down how many acres of each. And that's been a, a, a fantastic tool for us. So we know, you know, basically by county and by region, uh, what the most popular varieties are.
2: See, I see those numbers and I've never known where those come from. So that's, that's very interesting because I, of course, I don't get a, a a letter, so I guess I wouldn't know, but that's. That's very good that you get that kind of resolution for that information.
1: We're, we're one of the few states that, that do that. Uh, other states, they're paying the National Egg Statistics Service to do that, or most states, they just don't do it at all. So they, they don't know other than uh, seed sales that they can maybe track through their Crop Improvement Association, but that doesn't account for saved seed. So you're only getting a, a small piece of the puzzle there.
2: And so you do get numbers on save seed as well. So farmers do report that. Yes, yes.
1: And, and I guess to answer your question, yes, our, our breeding program has had a, a pretty good share of that, that Minnesota acreage. Uh, really in 2015, I think it's, uh, the variety linkert is, is the one that kind of really raised the status of our, of our program. Uh, that was the most popular variety for, for five years running. And now between Linkert, Shelley, MN Torgy, and MN Rosse, we're around 30, 30 to 35% of the, the state's acreage.
0: Well, what are some of the attributes? I mean, you, you mentioned resistance here, but uh, I know that when Joachim Wiersma does in some of the, in the testing, you are obviously looking at a number of other factors. You're looking at in terms of your program, um, yield is there. Um, anything else in addition to yield, uh, per se, or is that still, along with resistance, number one and two?
1: Uh, I would say yield is number one. Um, straw strength is probably number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is definitely responsible for the variety Linkert's five-year reign as as tops in Minnesota acres. Because if you look at the yields of Linkert... They're near the bottom. They always have been. Even when we first released it, it was near the bottom, but it had straw strength and it had protein, and and the growers can get a, a premium for high protein. But what the more common case is, they get uh, docked if it's below fourteen percent. And in most cases, Linkert will not run below fourteen percent protein, so they can be almost certain that they wouldn't get docked for protein and Linkerd also happens to have very good end use quality right now it's considered the the standard for the the spring wheat region so it's uh, all new varieties are getting tested against uh Linkerd in terms of bread baking quality so if if a variety has yield straw strength and protein it's probably going to do well if it has some good disease resistance that's a nice bonus so is the straw
0: strength uh, just spending a little bit on time, is that from a lodging standpoint, uh, or, uh, what other attributes are, is that why you're looking at that as a, as a major factor? Yes, yeah, it, it's,
1: it's lodging. And what, what really propelled Linkert up was, uh, 2015, growers may, may remember that year that we had a lot of, uh, wind and rainstorms that year. And Linkert was kind of in its first big year where a lot of guys were, were growing at, and it stood well, and the other varieties that were higher yielding, lower protein, but weaker straw, they fell down. So it was a lot more hassle trying to get those those harvested.
2: Yeah, talk to the seed corn companies; they know when they've you know when you have a product that doesn't fare well, that uh, farmers remember that, and and they um, and so it sounds like you had a good good year or, or good time frame for the release, so that they could really get some traction on it. So. We want to talk about some other crops, but I want to get a question in here about uh, winter wheat. So you you work on several you you're a spring wheat breeder, but you are involved with a lot of different wheat testing programs, different different classes of wheat, different types of wheat. So I I have a real interest in spring wheat or winter wheat. So what are your thoughts on winter wheat and in this uh, changing climate that we've got here? Is do we have a future for double cropping in Minnesota and using uh, winter wheat?
1: Sure. Uh, so my, my first job was winter wheat breeder at North Dakota State University. Uh, the acreage was low and it never really built up again. And they actually cut the program while I was there. So that was part of the reason that I moved on to USDA in Pullman, Washington. Uh, so that gives you a little bit of the answer right there is it's, it's tough to grow winter wheat in the Northern climates. Uh, so winter hardiness is an issue, but there's, there's maybe a, a bigger issue of just how to fit it into the crop rotation. So, you know, so many of the best acres in the state are in corn and soybean. Uh, corn is coming off too late to get winter wheat planted soybean maybe in some fields it's coming off early enough but most guys I think are kind of too busy with harvesting corn and soybeans to mess with winter wheat and you're probably going into a pretty dry seed bed as well so not ideal conditions so I think the the timing is probably the the biggest thing um, agronomically it it makes sense. It will out yield spring wheat. There's better weed competition. It can escape some some diseases. Um, another possible issue if we started having a lot of winter wheat acreage is green bridge. So if if the spring wheat isn't all harvested yet and you've got winter wheat starting to grow, then you've got a green bridge that insects can can uh, overwinter in and, and you have some problems that way.
2: Yeah, I tend to think about the challenges of uh, that crop after um, what what to put in that crop after uh, winter wheat and that double cropping situation. But I can see that your point is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of resistance on the front side of it around planting and establishment. Is and I didn't think through carefully through this, but you know, farmer time frames and that fall time frame and what what crop you follow and then how to get that in uh in a timely way and into a good seed bed so you get emergence would be really a challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the acres I, I think they're there have been around 40, fifty thousand acres a year in Minnesota don't really change a whole lot. So I think it's just some some specialty rotations. Uh, probably northern Minnesota is where the highest concentration is, where there's may- maybe not as much corn.
0: So, but agronomically, uh, are the varieties that are out there, um, or will be, uh, able to handle our winter weather, so to speak? And it, there was a, always concern years ago about that, but, um, you know, we say for example, uh, this year we've probably had a lack of snow cover in a lot of Minnesota. Uh, other times it's it's different. I mean, and I was just down to Iowa over the weekend, and they had Southern Iowa had 19 inches. It was just you know a lot. But you know now we've got concerns about lack of snow cover over the top of alfalfa. Um, when are we, is is that a, a a big deal in terms of trying to get this crop uh, to survive? Uh,
1: I would say that probably in at least eight out of ten years, it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, but that's another thing where, you know, if, if growers do have uh, winter kill, that's, that's something that they're going to remember for many years to come. There's a pretty long memory there. And I would say in general, winter hardiness has not been a really strong target of improvement for, for wheat breeders. I think you, you could go back 50, even 100 years and find just as good a winter hardiness back then as you do today. So there, there are definitely differences in the varieties. Uh, North Dakota state did uh, reestablish their breeding program about a dozen or so years ago. And they they've had some, some varieties that, that have good winter hardiness, the South Dakota materials are pretty good. Uh, but there are a few years where we have entire locations where, like you said, if you don't get enough snow cover, you know, all of those varieties have potential to kill, especially the ones that are more adapted to the southern locations. But
0: we'll continue to be involved with it in the University of Minnesota in our breeding programs going forward.
1: Yes. So Joachim Wiersma, uh, extension agronomist in Crookston, has been uh, coordinating our our winter wheat testing program, uh, and he's actually expanded it. So at you know, from when I was doing it. So he's testing more more varieties from more breeding programs, bringing, bringing in varieties from Canada uh, to really, you know, make sure we're testing the best of the best uh, varieties that may be adapted for the region.
2: Well, I'm sorry to linger on this topic. It's kind of a tangential topic here, but it's one, one of interest to me anyway, personally. So I appreciate that. And I was trying to make a bridge to uh, cover crops and I was trying to make a little connection here because you've also, um, as we've developed new uh, cover cropping systems and have more interest in new uh, crops for Minnesota, you've gotten pulled in or have jumped in uh, either way into uh, some, some breeding efforts. So can you tell us a little bit about those efforts?
1: Yeah. So this goes back uh, about 10, 10 to 12 years now. Uh, so this is the, the so-called forever green suite of crops. So these are cover crops and perennials. And the idea is to get more cover uh, on the landscape, especially over the winter. Um, so Don, Don Weiss has been, been leading this program for, for decades and what was really needed, he came, he came came to that conclusion fairly on was that we needed better materials, better crops. So, you know, not just cereal rye or tillage radish, we needed crops that, uh, growers could harvest and, you know, have some more economic incentive. So if you could harvest that winter wheat crop, now it's not just a cover crop. It's, it's like part of the, the rotation. So I, I got into that and decided, I, you know, my expertise in plant breeding could could be helpful here, and there was some funding available. Uh, so this, this was in about 20, 2011 with Kernza, or intermediate wheatgrass, and 2013 with, with pennycress. And the reason that I, I I said yes at that time, I had been asked many times over over the years previously, I said yes really for, for three reasons. One one is because I believe in it. Um, you know, having having grown up and lived in Minnesota most of my life, um, you know, Minnesotans, we, we want to protect our water, we're, reduce erosion, and cover crops and perennials are, are a great way to do that. So that was a, a good motivation. The second was... Uh, the new technologies that we can bring to bear on domesticating crops and specifically uh, more affordable, cheaper DNA sequencing technologies. Uh, so most breeding programs around the country are using DNA sequencing technology, DNA fingerprints to, to make uh, help make selections and make faster gains in the, in the program. And I thought that the timing is right here because we can use this technology and domesticate crops like pennycress and winter camelina much faster than we could even five years previous. So the timing is right. And the third part of that is there's a lot of students that were really interested in this. In fact, more than are interested in breeding wheat. So as I, as I looked at my wheat breeding program, it's, I can maybe have one student that I can fund in, in wheat breeding, uh, but I could I could handle, you know, two or three students uh, on Kernza or, or pennycress, So I'm, I'm helping develop those crops as well. And now my, my role, I would say, is more as an advisor. So we have a research assistant professor in the department, Prabeen Bajgin, that's running the Kernza breeding program. Julia Zhang is running the pennycress breeding program. And Matt Otta postdoc, is running the the Camelina program. So, I'm involved in meetings, and writing, and editing grants and, and publications. But the day to day breeding activities are uh, they they they're running their own programs essentially.
2: And so, uh, what is your what is your experience? I mean, you mentioned that, um, you know, these ten years ago, you could see that these new tools were really gonna uh, push things along, and and how. How has that worked for domestication? uh, Have have we made the gains that you expected, or is it uh, better than or or slower than you expected for some of these uh, early uh, domestications?
1: I would say it's been better than I expected. And part of that is the the other scientists involved in, in developing these technologies. So with Kernza... Uh, Almost from the get-go, in in 2011, we started doing the DNA sequencing, and we were doing genomic predictions based on the DNA markers uh, by 2015. And at that time, we were more advanced in our use of DNA marker technologies in intermediate wheatgrass than we were in wheat, which was kind of blows my mind when I think about it now. But that's, you know, you, you just started out, breeding this crop with, um, uh, this cheap DNA sequence and prediction technology. So it just seemed natural to go all in on that. So, uh, Prabeen is now using that technology basically to, to, you know, guide, uh, uh, selection decisions for the whole program. And I, I like to say it, they're sort of in a honeymoon period now where the gains are coming pretty fast in terms of those domestic, domestication traits, so reduced shattering, um, uh, better threshability. Uh, so sim- simple, relatively simple things, but that, that took, you know, decades, if not hundreds of years uh, for our other crops. This is happening in just a few years, uh, you know, in, in one generation of time. And with Pennycress, uh, Dr. Na- David Marks, who was a faculty member in uh uh, plant molecular, um, plant and microbial biology department, uh, he did a, a, a mutations in Pennycress and with cheap sequencing and knowing uh, its relationship, the relationship of that crop and its genes with Arabidopsis, which is sort of the lab rat of, of plants, he could make really fast progress at pinpointing exact genes uh, and then we could identify uh, the seeds that had that mutation Uh, So now, you know, I think we have the major domestication genes already in hand in Pennycress in less than 10 years of of research. It's,
2: it's, it's just shocking to me that, you know, that, uh, you know, from, a, I mean, there was significant investment for sure, uh, but this is public sector type money that's gone into this. This isn't, this isn't the bears and Cortevas of the world that are, are invested here. This is, this is, um, you know, um, orders of magnitude smaller than those kind of corporate investments, but yet you're able to make something so, so such tremendous strides. And I guess, especially relative to just, you can, you can actually see and, and compare that to what traditional breeding and crossing would, would crossing and breeding would do, uh, for you over time is, is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the acres aren't there yet. There's uh, about, t- I think, 2,000 acres of kernza in Minnesota. Uh, Pennycress is just getting started. There's uh, a few hundred acres of, of camelina. But I think the the potential is, you know, it, is in the millions in terms of the, the cover crops.
0: Can you uh, maybe pause a little bit for the our audience? And I don't know if you want to use an, an overview or Reader's Digest version when we talk about dna sequencing what what are the what's the mechanics involved with that is um, people envision someone extracting something from a seed in a lab but can you just review it a little bit for our audience what actually goes on when we use that term
1: sure oh there's there's kind of two aspects of it i guess when when we look at how we use that that technology so we're what we're doing is we're getting dna from uh just a little bit of a leaf punch That that, that's all you need, Uh, and we're we're using it in two ways. The first, when I when I what I what I would refer to as marker assisted selection, that's when we have a DNA marker sequence that we know is linked with a particular gene of interest. So, for example, uh, our lab um, twenty some years ago mapped the the major uh, gene for Fusarium head blight resistance called. Uh, called FHB1. So we have uh, uh, DNA markers uh, that, we can, that we can assay and know if the plant has that gene or does not have that gene. And that's a, a, a pretty routine uh, test nowadays using polymerase chain reaction, uh, which is a technology that's, that's more than 40 years old now. Um, but it's fairly inexpensive on the order of maybe a, a dollar per, per sample to do that. Uh, and we do that for a number of genes, so a number of disease resistance genes, uh, genes that would that would help give you good uh, bread making quality, for example. Uh, the other the, the, the more modern uh, approach to the DNA sequencing is what I would call maybe a DNA fingerprint. So that's looking at, DNA sequence differences across the entire genome. Um, And in any one comparison between uh, two plants, you may may be looking at 4 or 5,000 or 10,000 differences and then trying to correlate those differences with performance in the field or resistance to a disease. And then you train a model based on that. So looking at those 4,000 DNA differences and the performance, you train a model, and then you're using that to predict the performance on other genotypes or other plants that you have not yet tested in the field, but you have their DNA information. So it, it's sort of an AI approach to, to plant breeding. Uh, the major seed companies have been doing that for uh, uh, m- more than 10 years now. Uh, our, our wheat breeding program has been doing it starting about eight years ago and, and just ramp, ramping up our use of the technology a little bit more every year, trying to predict as many traits as, as possible. And really, the, the bottom line, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to use the DNA sequence information to predict what the best performing plants will be and those are the ones we'll test in the field. If they're not predicted to be good, we haven't made much investment into them other than the the DNA sequencing, which runs about $10 per plant, which in the grand scheme of things is quite cheap. We just throw those away.
2: Yeah, so it's, you know, there's some simple economics that can go into this, and you can just look at the numbers and the cost of doing this lab analysis and and relative to doing all the screening in the field, and especially as the cost of that screening in greenhouses and and field continues to go up, you know the other costs continue to go down, and and it sure um, it sure leads to more and more of this kind of evaluation and pushing towards that quicker. So it's um, it's it's pretty exciting. Um, I think. Um, we uh, we we've seen the benefits in in uh, some of the major crops, but I can see that the 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 real gains I can see of this domestication side is pretty cool. Can you
0: tell us more about your staff and graduate students, and maybe even teaching here at the university? I'm, I imagine there's there's technicians involved, there's there's graduate students, postdocs, but you have people coming in and, and cycling back out. A little bit about that, and maybe. Some, some other responsibilities you have here in addition to research, maybe on the teaching side.
1: Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about my, my wheat breeding staff. Uh, so it's essentially three people, and that's really what I've had the, the whole time that I've, that I've been here, since 1998. Uh, two are field-based and one is more lab-based. Uh, and so the lab-based person, uh, Emily Conley, now has a Ph.D., uh, she's been doing the marker-assisted selection and is also in charge of the genomic prediction. So, in anything DNA-based, she's the person uh, touching that, making sure it gets done, doing the analysis, uh, and then the two, two uh, field-based positions. One, Susan Reynolds, has an MS, and, and Nate Stewart has a has a, B, uh, a bachelor's degree. Uh, currently, we have two postdocs, both funded by USDA-specific cooperative. Agreements. Um, uh, that's nice to have. I don't think I've ever had two postdocs working on wheat at the same time, so we're hoping to make some uh, some gains there looking at uh, how to use that genomic prediction technology more efficiently. Uh, currently, I'm looking for a grad student on wheat. Uh, I'm advising one grad student on, on intermediate wheatgrass currently.
0: And, and uh, are you in a position, too, where you're teaching as well?
1: Yes, I have a 20% research or a te- teaching appointment. I teach um, a 5,000-level plant breeding class, uh, which the last few years has been about half undergraduate and, and half graduate students.
0: Is that an intro class or is that one after the intro class? It, so it,
1: would, it would be one after the intro class, uh, and, and I've been teaching that one since 2015. Before that, I was teaching an 8,000-level um graduate student only class. So with that one, I saw every graduate program in plant breeding or, or molecular genetics that was going through the program. Uh, with this 5,000 class, I'll only see the ones that haven't had a lot of uh, plant breeding background. Or we have students from food science and nutrition. We've had one from entomology. We always have a few from plant pathology. Uh, so it's it's more of a class for, for students that kind of want to get a taste of plant breeding or learn the language a little bit because so, they see themselves working with plant breeders in the future.
2: So I always like to ask, and we're running a little bit low on time here, but I want to I always ask what um, what excites you about your work and what, what uh, maybe what some of the things are that are exciting for the future. So whether that's teaching or the research side or... Um, any of the other scholarship or anything happening around this university or others, what's, what's exciting for you? What, what keeps you coming back or what's, what's, what are you looking forward to in the future?
1: Well, on the teaching side, uh, what I've, what I've started to do is look back at the past classes because I've taught this plant breeding class. uh, It was every other year Uh, in the last few years, it's every other year looking at the roster of names that have gone through that class and where they are now. And that, that's a really strong motivation for me to really give it my best because I see where, where these students are ending up in, in industry or faculty positions. Uh, so that, that's a strong motivator and, and a sense of, of satisfaction as well. Uh, on the research side, uh that's you know that's pretty easy for for plant breeding cuz you're there's always something that you have to do that's better and we're we're struggling against that now because our two most recent releases in one in 2020 MN Torgi and MN Rostey in 2022 we're having trouble beating them so it's it's a constant challenge okay am, am, are we making the wrong crosses or, or are we selecting for the right things here um so it's, it, it it's a it's a it's a challenge, and you know, plant breeding is a numbers game, uh, and I think it's it may be the case that you know we we just had two really good varieties, and the bar is set pretty high right now, uh, so we'll we'll increase our numbers and and try to try to beat them in the next few years.
2: Yeah, it's tough tough business to, uh, try to have to beat yourself, uh, year over year. So I, uh, I really appreciate that though.
1: Well, thank you very
0: much. Uh, talk about closing out. We want to really thank you, uh, Jim, for stopping by here for this version of, uh, University of Minnesota CropCast. So this has been with, uh, uh Dr. Uh, Jim Anderson here, University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy and, and plant breeding. Um, and, uh, my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist. And uh, I guess at this point in time, any last words other than that. uh, Thank you all for listening here to the University of Minnesota CropCast. Uh, And we look forward to visiting with you in the future. Thanks again.